Hello, everyone, and welcome to Diversity Matters, where we explore all things diversity, equity, and inclusion related. I'm your host, Oscar Holmes IV, and I'm so excited to welcome an amazing scholar, Dr. Kevin Nadal, to the guest chair today as we talk about microaggressions and activism. Kevin has published over 100 works on multicultural issues in the fields of psychology and education. He has been featured in a variety of media outlets, such as the New York Times, BuzzFeed, Huffington Post, CBS, NBC, ABC, PBS, and the Filipino Channel. He received his doctorate in counseling psychology from Columbia University and is a distinguished professor of psychology at both John Jay College of Criminal Justice and Graduate Center at the City University of New York. Dr. Nadal, welcome to Diversity Matters. Thank you so much, Oscar. I'm so happy to be here. We'll be back after a quick word from our sponsors. Looking for an affordable and efficient way to create your next podcast, live stream, or promotional video? Introducing the studio at Carney Point, catering to creators, marketers, corporate, and educational brands alike. Our state-of-the-art studio provides the flexibility you need to produce the creative content your audience is looking for. Our friendly and knowledgeable staff will handle the technical details, keeping you free to focus on what matters most, creating the best possible media for your audience. Click the banner now for a free consultation. Welcome to the Diversity Matters Season 4 premiere. Wow, four seasons already. So yes, we are going to talk about microaggressions today, since that's one of your main research areas. But Kevin, you are such an awesome person and a member of so many wonderful communities that I'm excited to see where our conversation may take us. And so if we end up on other topics, that's perfectly fine with me. So Kevin and I go way back and I'm always in awe at everything you do. So I thank you for agreeing to be our season four opener. So Kevin, let's get started. So Kevin, you spent a large part of your research career studying microaggressions. Just for the sake of our audience, can you just break it down for us and explain a little bit about the history around microaggressions and how this research began? The term microaggressions was first coined in the 1970s by a Black American psychiatrist named Chester Pierce. And he initially wanted to study some of the subtle forms of racism, especially targeted towards Black Americans during that time. And he focused on some of the media representations of Black folks during that time. But it was the 70s. So there was a lot of overt racism that was still happening, a lot of issues related to post-civil rights era segregation and so forth. And so it didn't really take off as a field, right? And then in 2007, my mentor, Dr. Daryl Tsu at Columbia University, he wanted to revive that research. And if you think about that period of time, 2007 was around the time that then Senator Obama was running for president. And we started to see how racism has taken another form. Overt racism had still existed and was still very prevalent in all of our communities. But people were starting to talk about some of the more subtle, more covert types of racial biases that they experienced in their life. And so at that time, we started to compile some of these subtle forms of discrimination, which we decided to follow in the, the research of Dr. Pierce and, and call microaggressions. And so the research started off very theoretical based on a lot of our own experiences. Our research team at the time was quite diverse racially in terms of gender and sexual orientation. But we focused on race first. 
And we talked about the various types of microaggressions that people of color face. And so talking about things like the assumption of criminality, where people presume that some people of color might be dangerous or violent, or where they get labeled as angry or hostile, to the perpetual foreigner stereotypes, where certain people of color are presumed to not be American and to be asked things like, where are you from? And where are you really from? Or to be told, you speak good English. And so that started off as our theoretical model. We published in The American Psychologist in 2007, which was you know, a huge thing at the time, still is, to publish in such a major publication, the premier publication of psychologists around the country. And that's where it starts to really take off. So then we start to do focus group studies, focusing on people of color and their experiences and specific racial groups. So Black Americans, Asian Americans, Latino Americans. And then it branched off into quantitative research, so scale development on racial microaggressions. And then it also branched off into other historically marginalized groups. And so looking at the types of microaggressions faced by women, by LGBTQ folks, by people with disabilities, and so forth. And you know, one of the things that is notable about microaggressions research is the speed in which it picked up pretty quickly and how it spread so quickly, not just in academia, but even in mainstream vernacular, right? Usually in academia, we have certain terminology that we're aware of and certain research variables that people are aware of, but they don't necessarily get talked about in the mainstream. But because microaggressions was such a concept that people could relate to, it wasn't too long till you heard the term in the news and later in television shows and talk shows would have episodes dedicated to microaggressions. And so it just really took off and just been really pleased to see that trajectory. I'm glad people are talking about microaggressions and not just because it means that people are doing this research and people are getting an understanding of what happens, but because microaggressions really do cause harm in people's lives. And before, it might have been just written off as just being harmless or what's the big deal? You know, oftentimes people of historically marginalized groups were met with comments like, well, it's all in your head or you're being too sensitive or why does any of this matter? It's not like violent or it's not old fashioned racism. So it shouldn't matter. But our research has found over the past two decades that microaggressions have significant impacts on mental health. So things like depression and anxiety and trauma symptoms, self-esteem issues, even physical health issues. So things like people's inability to sleep at night, to people even having increases in alcohol use and drug use, to even cardiovascular disease and other physical ailments. So I'm just happy to know that it, it's been researched so much. And now it almost is like as if like we have receipts, right? It used to be that people would say like, oh, it's all in your head. And now we can point to the research and say like, well, actually research finds that they actually are harmful, which hopefully at least helps to support our argument a little bit more, whether or not people actually hear that is another point, but it's something that at least we can use to help us to advocate for not just the, the minimalization of microaggressions, but also just the wellness and the thriving for people of historically marginalized groups. Absolutely. And I think it's a perfect example of showing how this research can not only have an impact in the scholarly community, but also an impact in the general public. And I'm just excited to see how much it is in the mainstream now as a part of the conversation. But sometimes when things get over to the mainstream conversation, 
there's also some confusion that comes along with it. Particularly, I'm sure you hear it a lot, but I hear it a lot from people who say, well, we shouldn't call it microaggressions, right? It actually should be called macroaggressions. And so that's one of the things that I constantly have to explain to people about, okay, well, in our literature, we actually have levels of analyses and things like that. And so it's not exactly what you think it may be colloquially. So can you explain that, again, the term and what we do as psychologists and how we see these things? Sure, absolutely. I'm glad you brought that up. And I'm glad you used the word colloquial because that's a big part of it. It is colloquial. It is semantics. At the end of the day, we're all talking about the same thing. We're all talking about the ways in which different forms of racism or oppression affect our lives or the lives of historically marginalized people. And the term microaggression was first termed not to focus on the fact that they don't have a big impact, but rather the manifestation of the act itself. You know, a lot of times these microaggressions are so covert. And even sometimes when they feel more intentional or hostile, the perpetrator and enactor of these microaggressions don't view it that way. They don't even think they did anything wrong. And so in that way, it doesn't quite fit the category complete old school fashion racism where people are intentionally trying to hurt you, intentionally using harmful language, racial slurs, homophobic slurs, but people who rather just don't necessarily have an understanding of their impact on others. And so when we say the word micro, we're not talking about micro in terms of the harm or the impact, but really the manifestation. And, you know, I agree with a lot of times when people say maybe we need to come up with another word. And I think maybe we could, you know, I think just initially we started using this term that was first coined in the 1970s because that's what we felt fit. And maybe now there might be room for there to be different levels of microaggressions or even like some things might be deciphered as something else, right? So like maybe there is a term to define something that feels very hostile, but in which the person might not necessarily know what they're saying, right? And I think that I'm open to those conversations, but as long as we're still talking about the same thing, that all forms of discrimination are hurtful, all forms of bias are harmful, and that we're all doing the work to demonstrate that these discrimination needs to stop. Right, I agree. Again, as an organizational psychologist, for me, I'm looking at it from a level of analysis viewpoint, right? Where it's, it's at the interpersonal level, micro level versus group level versus, you know, organizational level, macro, things like that. But I also think that we've done some of that work to distinguish between the groups, right? That's where we come up with, you know, micro invalidations versus micro assaults versus micro insults, things like that. And so I agree. I think as the field grows and as this research stream grows, we have people who are trying to identify specific, you know, as we call it in our field, like constructs to accurately define these types of things. So you mentioned your advisor before, so I wanted to come back. You've worked and published with the famed psychologist, Dr. Daryl Wing Su, on this topic. And so what would you say drew you to research in this topic? And what was it like working with Dr. Su? It's really funny just thinking about how that trajectory even happened for me. Like, I applied to Teachers College in Columbia University actually at the time when he just started. So his name wasn't even on the website. I wanted to go to the program and wasn't necessarily trying to work with him at the time. And when I got there, that's when it was his like first full year. And luckily, fortunately, he took me in as an advisee. And, you know, that was very meaningful for me because as an undergraduate student is when I first read his book, Counseling the Culturally Different at the time is what it was called. Now it's called Counseling the Culturally Diverse. 
And that book really was transformative in my ways of thinking and also just like my interest in psychology, right? Like I think prior to that, I'd been so ingrained in me that psychology was so universal or maybe they're colorblind in lots of ways. And it wasn't until I came across that book along with other books and articles by Black psychologists, Asian American psychologists, Latino psychologists, that I really saw that there was a possibility for us to study our own communities and to understand how psychology not only could apply to us, but how we could create our own constructs of psychology within our own communities. And so when I got into the doctoral program, you know, it was the early 2000s, and he, you know, started to think about what he wanted to do for this next part of his career. He earlier had done a lot of work on Asian American psychology, and then later he moved on into multicultural competence. And so it was this next part of his career that he was interested in studying something related but different. And that's where he started to think about how we could revive Dr. Pierce's work. And it really started from just us having conversations. I remember very specifically being in his office in Harlem at Columbia Teachers College and a group of us on the research team, very racially diverse, just started talking about all the different things that happened to us on a regular basis. And it felt very validating, right? Because I think so often as people of color, and especially 20 years ago, we're used to people invalidating us or telling us it's not a big deal. And so to have this huge authority figure, this giant in the field to tell us that our experiences were valid and normalized and happened to all of us and are all just microcosms of systemic oppression was very reaffirming and even very healing in a lot of ways. And so working with him has been quite a blessing. He gets uncomfortable when I talk about him, but he is like my academic father. We check in every once in a while, like he's met my kids and I've met his grandchildren and he's even met my real father, my bio father, but also my real father. And so it's just been really, just been a really nice relationship that we've had. And I think part of the reason why I've been able to succeed was because he showed me a lot of possibility. I didn't think I could do a lot of things when I first got into to the doctoral program. But after seeing everything that he did, from publishing multiple books to keynote speeches to consulting with major corporations and entities, I started to see that maybe I could do that too. And 20 years later, I have. Excellent. So shout out to all of the great advisors out there. We cannot overstate the importance it is to have someone who supports you along this journey. It is a very difficult thing to get a PhD or any advanced graduate level education. And it's so important for advisors to be people who not only challenge you, but who also support you. And so I'm fortunate to have had great advisors, my second win of my program as well. And, and I feel equally blessed to have them in my life. And, and so I'm glad to hear just such a warm story about having an advisor who you really admire in that way. And so while we can relate to the topic of microaggressions, it always come up. It shouldn't come up, but for people like us who look like us and who share identities like us, it's the, this threat of you just doing me search, right? And so how would you respond to those types of accusations in the scholarly field when people are like, well, that's not scientific, that's just me search, right? You know, I actually don't mind being called me search because it means that we're studying something that's important to us, studying something that we either can relate to or have 
some passion about because it's important to us. And I think in some ways, when people make such accusations, it really shows more about them than about us. It shows us that they are people who are studying things that are far removed from them, that maybe they don't feel connected to certain communities or to even certain issues that are of importance to them. It also really is a demonstration white supremacy and colorblind ideologies because this notion that we're supposed to separate ourselves from our work, separate ourselves from our passions, just doesn't make sense in communities of color, right? Where in collective groups, we are part of our communities everywhere we go. Even if you're not physically with them in that moment, we're always part of our communities. And so us being able to study these concepts that we are passionate about while still using the same, if not more advanced, statistical, research, empirical methods means that we're actually quite better than them, right? And I think that's something that's really important to acknowledge is that if you're doing something without passion, then you're missing an element. And if I am passionate about the communities that I study, then I may pick up on nuances that certain others might not even understand. And then even as an additional point is when people study people community concepts that either they're not related to or part of, they may always miss something that might not necessarily be part of their worldview or they might not catch because of their own biases. And so I think people should study things that they're familiar with. I mean, even just as a simple example, like if you have these early psychologists or any researchers, scientists who are studying our communities from in the early days, the 17, 18, 1900s, that they came in with a lot of biases and they missed out on all the different cultural nuances or they had their preconceived notions of what our communities were like and then made these huge judgments about these communities and even made research to fit those biases. And so I think for us, because we're used to people being critical or cynical of our work, we work extra hard to make sure that our research is robust and that we're using the most appropriate and effective methods because we know that we'll be criticized or even evaluated differently than folks who don't study communities that they're part of. So I think there are multiple kind of clapbacks that we can give to people that say things like that. In fact, even just, I know I just said a lot, but even just one thing that I might say is just to question back to them, like, why aren't you interested in your research? Or why don't you have a personal connection to your research? And what does that say about you? For example, like, I have a lot of folks who, who will try to apply to our doctoral programs, and they'll say, like, I want to study like offenders, or I want to study like the justice system. And you ask them, well, why? And they're like, oh, I just think it's important. And they have no connection. And I'm like, well, now you're coming into it as if you are like this omnipotent person who knows everything and you want to help them. And so that ends up treading into the waters of white savior complex. And that's something for them to be aware of, right? So I'd rather be somebody who's doing research within my communities because I'm passionate about them and can uplift them and can catch some of the nuances that external outsider researchers would never be able to. I love that. And I love the perfect clapbacks as you shared with us. 
And, and it also, I think, is important to reflect upon that and for people who make those accusations to realize what are they calling the norm? Like, what are they standardizing as the norm? And just like so many researchers have, have pointed out, just because you don't say it doesn't mean that race doesn't exist or sex or sexual orientation. And like, those things are always a part of us. So if I'm studying leadership, and again, if your sample is majority white, that's still studying about race, right? Exactly. You can't center yourself in these narratives, and it's only the other people who are being specifically studying race. No, you're studying race as well. You're just not stating it. Yeah, you're not stating it, and but we all can read into it and understand exactly that that's what you're doing. Right. So, you know, I get this question a lot, and I'm sure you get it a lot being a scholar in the area. I always tell people in preface by saying that it's not necessarily our responsibility to fix these things, right? Because we didn't cause these things. I think systems need to change and need to fix these things. But obviously, people like to have individual reactions and responses. And so what's some advice that you can give to people about how they may deal with microaggressions when they experience them? Everyone has their own journey and, and has their own processes that works most effectively for them. But I think universally, you know, one of the things that's really important is to just to talk about those experiences, to not internalize them. I think the generations of the past, so like probably millennials and older, I think that we've all learned to internalize so much oppression, which then leads to things like imposter phenomenon, leads to things like self-doubt, inability to, to do things or perform well, stereotype threat, all sorts of things that affect us. And I think a, a huge part of that is that we're taught to just to sit with those emotions, to internalize, to not complain, to not make waves, to not make a big deal out of things. But I think those things are actually quite harmful, you know, at the end of the day. And so talking about your experiences, realizing that your experiences with microaggressions have nothing to do with you and rather are demonstration of people's own biases and their own stuff. And in fact, a lot of times these microaggressions are caused by people who feel threatened by you because they see you as being someone who is smarter than them or more talented than them in some way. And so, you know, I think talking about them is very helpful. I don't think it's the, the responsibility for people to educate folks all the time, especially because in doing so, that leads to that racial battle fatigue and just the other psychological fatigue that happens when we're constantly put in that position to educate others. And so I think for me, one of the things that I, I've been leaning into is just calling things out and walking away. I don't need to engage in this really long ass conversation with you, but I can at least acknowledge what happened, name it, point out the harm involved, personalize it if necessary, and then just walk away. And if they want to talk about it, they can find someone else to talk about it because that's not my responsibility. And so it's really learning to externalize racism or oppression instead of internalizing it, right? So by externalizing it to others, by externalizing it, by naming it, and realizing that it has more to do with others and systemic problems than it has to do with yourself. I love that response. And so would you have any advice to leaders or organizations, again, taking it to the macro levels, to the, if they want to make system-wide changes? Yeah, I mean, I think there are a lot of things. I think one thing is that there need to be more cultures in which people are able to talk about race and diversity 
And so it's not such a scary topic altogether. I think one of the things that has happened in the past is people are calling things out when it's already too late, right? Like where you experience so much harm or harassment or even violence before you actually report it to anybody versus if there were workplaces, classrooms, where from the start, people feel comfortable in talking about issues of race and equity and where people recognize that these systems are always present or even that dynamics are always present, then it might be less scary to talk about any of these mishaps when they occur because you know that the people who are leading these spaces are open to these sorts of conversations. And I think people create these cultures by having things like workshops and speakers, but also just by integrating language into every aspect of whatever group you're part of, right? So like if you're leading a faculty meeting, for example, to be able to talk about systemic oppression in open ways, because that again, creates that climate in which people know that it's an important topic that people need to be aware of. I think another thing that leaders can do is just to model and modeling could be not just becoming better informed in all of these areas and knowing how to integrate those conversations, like I said, but also holding themselves accountable for if they ever cause harm or if they commit microaggressions or if they ever do something that may be considered problematic or harmful or some power dynamic is used inappropriately. Holding yourself responsible is one of the best things that an ally, an accomplice, an upstander can do because you're demonstrating to others that it is possible and that these are some of the ways that you can fight some of that oppression yourself. And then, you know, and I think the last thing that I'll say is like, I think that it it goes beyond just workshops and diversity trainings. It has to be integrated into everything. For example, if you're running a program of some sort that has nothing to do with race, quote unquote, has nothing to do with race, there's always some reason or some way to have a conversation about race. In the same way that you were talking about research, you're doing a study on something that appears to have nothing to do with race or gender or whatnot. There can always be some conversation, some consideration, and not as an afterthought, but from the start where people can think about how certain social identities would be impacted by whatever it is that you're studying, that you're discussing, that you're sitting with in the moment. And I think that leaders can do the best job in modeling for how to have those conversations. I totally agree with you. And and I cannot, again, I'll just reiterate that role modeling can be one of the most powerful things leaders can do. And we all make mistakes. We all make cultural footballs. And so I, even being a researcher in this field, I still make cultural footballs myself. Like we're never going to get to a point where we know it all, right? Or we never make a cultural football, but it's about taking responsibility for our behaviors and actions and and apologizing and then being better the next day. That's just powerful advice. I really appreciate you for sharing that with us. So, you know, we have over five decades of research now on microaggressions. Would you be able to talk to us a little bit about some of the findings in that literature that perhaps may have shocked you the most that you were perhaps not expecting? And where do you think this literature should go in the future? Sure. You know, I mentioned some of the research in the beginning, like just some of the impacts that microaggressions have. I mean, I think we've always known 
that microaggressions affect us, right? So anecdotally, most of us have been able to identify that when these things happen, like I don't feel good afterwards. It makes me doubt myself. It takes up a lot of mental energy and mental space. And so being able to not just do the research, but even to see other people's research that are finding the same things, you know, have really been validating just to really understanding our experiences. It makes me think about like, if we had this research 50 years ago, how that would have impacted people back then to not internalize so much, or even for systems to be aware of the ways in which those systems were oppressive to folks. I think some of the things that the research that has been really helpful is just in terms of the qualitative studies, really being able to hear people's voices and their own experiences. I know sometimes people have qualms about qualitative research, but I think when you're trying to at least put or start to understand people's lived experiences, qualitative is, is most important. And so I think the trajectory of a lot of this microaggression research has started with qualitative and then moved into the quantitative. And with the quantitative findings, what's really satisfying and gratifying is when they essentially say the same things that the qualitative research has said, which is that greater accumulation of microaggressions may then lead to a lot of these various psychological and physical health outcomes. In terms of future research directions, there's so much more that needs to be done. I think one of the things that I'm really happy has happened in more recent years is the focus on intersectionality and looking at how the intersections of race and gender or sexual orientation and race have you know, really affected the ways that we navigate the world and how those specific intersectional microaggressions have such a detrimental impact on, on people of historically marginalized groups. I think for me as a queer person of color, this research is especially powerful because I remember being a closeted teen and thinking that gay people were all white and how we not only have more exposure to queer people in general, but we have and more exposure to queer people of color in general. But we also have research that demonstrates that the types of things that we experience within our own communities, so sexual orientation types of microaggressions or gender identity microaggressions within our own communities, as well as the racial microaggressions within LGBTQ communities, and then all of the microaggressions in general society, like we've been able to name that. And I think that's very powerful for young folks, especially who may struggle with their identities, that they know that they're not alone and what they're experiencing is so normalized and it shouldn't be normalized, but it is because we're seeing the same dynamics happening across every part of the country, every type of community that this happens. And when things like that happen, you know it's systemic because if what's happening to the little black boy, queer boy in the South and a similar dynamic is happening to the indigenous, non-binary person in the Midwest, that you know that there's a systemic thing that's happening that's making our communities, especially those with intersectional identities, experience so much pain and suffering and that we need to do something about it. Absolutely. Thank you so much for that. And I will say, as a scholar, but as a person who also am a part of the LGBTQ community, African-American, and a person who's really proud of all of these identities, I admire you greatly of how you marry your scholarship and activism. And so is there any advice that you could give to other, not only just scholars, but just people in general? how they can kind of do rigorous work, but also keep in the forefront that activism is really important as well. 
I actually don't know how this happened for me because I think for me, it's like I wasn't trying to be a scholar activist, but it was just something that happened. And then as it became more advanced in my career, like I found myself leaning into it a little bit more. But I think one thing that has made it easier transition was before I was a scholar, I was already an organizer, right? I was a student organizer back in my undergrad days, already participating in you know, activism, protest, et cetera, the fight for ethnic studies, all sorts of things when I was an undergraduate student, well before I thought I would even become an academic. And so then when I started my master's program and then later my doctoral program, I learned to integrate that academic stuff into my already activist way of thinking, as opposed to, I think what happens with a lot of folks is if they try to blend in so much or assimilate, I should say, into this academic culture, it becomes harder to blend in that activist advocate sort of mindset. And so for me, that's what happened, right? I was always an activist first. I got in trouble a lot for it, actually, in my doctoral program specifically, where they would say I was doing too much extracurricular activities, even though my grades were great. But I think that there was also a fear that you had to be a traditional psychologist, whatever that meant, right? And I think over time, I've learned and have relearned that there is no such thing as a traditional psychologist. There is no such thing as a traditional professor. If there is, it's what society has told us is the image or trajectory of that person, right? If you Google professor, right, in Google images, pictures of all white men, all stock photos will show up. That's what, what comes up as professor, right? So we need to change that. When I started to learn that people were going to be angry with whatever I did, I just started to lean into doing what felt best for me. I remember like, and I tell this to my students all the time, especially my students of color, is like, you can do nothing, especially my black students, you can do nothing and people will think you're hostile or angry, right? You could just be silent and that's what they're going to say. So might as well just say what you want to say because they're going to say it anyway or say what you want to say and then and then walk away right so don't engage in the conversation because you know that's what they're going to think anyway and then for me it's not just that piece but it's also the piece of like they're always going to say you're not professional enough they're always going to say your research isn't good enough or that you're sometimes i hear things like oh well you get what you have because of your identities they're always going to come up with some excuse right as if like okay, so I'm a token and that's why I'm able to get like all of these accolades is because of that, as opposed to my work and my drive and all those things. And so might as well just go through life enjoying it as best as you can. And I think once you do that, like that helps you like to not fixate on all those voices that try to bring you down. I think so many people of color and, and especially people of multiple marginalized groups we have heard those messages that we're not good enough or we're not smart enough. And it's a shame when so many of those people believe it, right? Because you are capable, but maybe you have just heard too many people because of their own nonsense tell you that you're not, right? And so this is, again, why I focus so much on externalizing those messages instead of internalizing those messages. And the best way to externalize them is to talk about them, to name them, to find your support system who can gas you up and tell you all the things that you need to hear when you're unable to hear it yourself. So we can go on and on with this conversation, but I think that was a perfect place to round us down. So just for our listeners' sake, can you talk a little bit about some of the maybe current projects that you may have so that we can look out for? Sure. I just published a couple of books. 
this past year. One is the Sage Encyclopedia of Filipina Exo-American Studies, co-edited by my friends Alison Tinciajo Cabales and E.J. David. It's a comprehensive interdisciplinary encyclopedia set that focuses on various aspects of Filipino-American history and experiences. And coming up this spring is my newest book called Dismantling Everyday Discrimination, Microaggressions and the LGBTQ Community. And, you know, it's an update to my previous book, That's So Gay, but talking about how microaggressions towards LGBTQ people have really changed and transformed over the past decade, how discrimination is still very much present in our lives, but it looks differently than it did before, because before it was much more overt, and now it's still overt, as seen by some of the nonsense that some of these elected officials are trying to pass, but also covert in ways in which people think they're being allies, but in reality, may still commit a lot of these microaggressions. So those are my current projects. Also follow me on Instagram and Twitter, and I try my best to really make some of these concepts of psychology applicable and relatable so that we're not just writing academic articles, but rather we're able to educate others and spread the good word in other ways too. So thank you so much. You are such a role model. And thank you so much, Dr. Nadal, for joining me in the guest chair today to talk about microaggressions and activism. You have shared so much wonderful information with our listeners. And I encourage all of you out there to go out and buy Dr. Nadal's books and support his work. I wish you continued success with all of your projects, my friend. Thank you so much, Oscar. I appreciate you and I appreciate having this talk with you as well. Thank you for listening to Diversity Matters. If you enjoyed our show and want to hear more, please subscribe to our show, post, talk about, and reshare our show with all of your friends and family. And leave us a favorable review and rating so that we'll make it easier for others to find us wherever they listen to podcasts. We cannot do this important work or keep it going without you. So we really appreciate your support. We especially like to thank our episode sponsor, CO Power LLC, and the studio at Kearney Point. The studio at Kearney Point is a state-of-the-art facility to handle all of your recording and production needs. For more information, please visit their website at www.kearneypoint.studio. If you or your company would like to sponsor a Diversity Matters episode, please visit the podcast section of our website at www.whconsultingfirm.com for more information. Diversity Matters is produced by WH Consulting, a firm that provides a wide range of management and consulting and professional services to individuals and organizations. Original music produced by Sincere Morton Murray. Until next time, peace and love. Thank you.